you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, president of MCFA Global. I'm sitting here today along with my boy, Mike Stedman, the show's producer. What's up, Mike? What's going on, BJ? I think I messed that up. It should be MCFA, not MCFA Global, because you have yeah, it in, you have Global right. on your website. Yeah, you're right. BJ, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited for this podcast, man. I know we've been, you know, for our listeners out there, we've been working on it hard behind the scenes. BJ and his team have put in a lot of work. But uh, I think we should probably start off, BJ, about telling everyone why this podcast and why now? Why this podcast? All right, let's try and take it back. The, uh, the idea of this podcast actually came about years ago. Uh, I was down in D.C., listening to a former boss of mine, General Duke DeLuca, speak at the Association of General Contractors. And the message he was bringing, it, it, was, it was all about public policy and infrastructure investment at the time um, and the need to prioritize. So it, it started me down this path of like, and, and he was talking about uh, public servants not being able to take risks, right? There's, there's a misalignment um, there's, there's no upside for them taking risk and there's only downside in public, um, judgment of, of their success or not. So that's, that's where the idea first started. And then as, as the, you know, last couple of years have developed, I think we, we as a nation have spent so much time, uh, talking about politics, not policy and highlighting divisiveness, not not what really unites us. And I think what unites us is, is creativity. What unites us is hard work. What unites us is uh, re- really love, uh, love of family, love of country. I think like when you bring up an emotionally charged topic, uh, whatever it may be, uh, where, where people just react uh, emotionally, I think that we start to highlight the wrong part of society. So why the podcast? The podcast is called Inspiring People and Places because, and, and this just hit me the other day, inspiring people and places, inspiring people and places. So there's the verb and there's the, the adjective. Um, so we want to inspire people, but we also want to bring inspiring people on the show uh, to help us live out our mission at MCFA, which is to inspire people and places. And when we say that, we mean inspiring our employees, inspiring our clients, inspiring our client organizations. And because we're in the, uh, the capital project world, it's inspiring the places, the facilities, the infrastructure, the real estate that we, uh, we build. Why now? I think we hit that, right? Um, yeah, but I want to go a little deeper on the why now. Oh, okay. Here's why. It seems like everybody's starting a podcast these days. At least what we're told, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're a bit of a private person when it comes to your family and everything. You know, but you are head of, uh, you know, this a successful firm and you're you're kind of stepping outside your comfort zone because you feel like you have something to say and you feel like so moved to say it now, especially in the midst of all the chaos that's been going on in the country due to the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else. And so why don't we un, uh, pull back the layers on that a little bit for our listeners and uh, let them know? 
put me on the spot. All right, so I was nervous enough to start the first episode. Now you're now you're throwing uh, some heavier stuff at me. I I guess okay. There there's a meme. You know, uh, wake up in your twenties and you think I got to get a job. Wake up in your thirties, you think I got to start a podcast. Something like that. Um, so I probably was about thirty when I started thinking. Oh, maybe I should start a podcast and. Uh, fear and humility and uh, fear of judgment, uh, self-promotion is counter core value to who and what I am. But I, I do think that uh, more than anything, I think I want to bring inspiring stories out. Um, it, it, like I said, I, I think that... <laughs> There's there's too many negative voices. So if I can be one small voice in in a pool of podcasts that that highlights some goodness and and in particular to our industry, great. If I can inspire a future employee to join our team through this, great. If we can inspire a future client, uh, or or maybe not even a client, somebody I never meet, to uh, feel a little more entrepreneurial in their public service, I think. It's worth it. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, we'll we'll try I'll, with your help. We'll try to uh, tell a little bit of my story so people get to know me. But my hope is not to tell my story. My hope is to highlight the story of of uh, successful individuals. Some of them my mentors um, in in the field of architect, engineering, and construction, public and private sector. Uh, because I think both sides can benefit and, and they both bring different perspectives, right? The private sector is, is really focused on, uh, creating value and, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how do we, how do we, uh, pay employees? How do we grow our companies? How do we put food on the table for our own families? Uh, public servants, you know, it, the, the, the flip side of public service, and and I was, you know, you and I both served. Um, we didn't have to worry about paychecks at the end of the week, but we had to worry about a whole bunch of other stuff, right? You and I deployed. Uh, we had soldiers um, under under our leadership. Uh, I've been on a Corps of Engineers project, one point five billion dollars at twenty six years old, and if it goes wrong, it's you know, there's there's thousands of contractors on that job. If it goes wrong, it's not Turner Construction or Clark Construction necessarily. It's in the in the papers. It's it's the Corps of Engineers. It's the federal government screwed something up. So the public servants have the weight of compliance and risk management. And I think if we can use this uh, podcast to blend those two mindsets, the 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 risk taking and and really if you if you look at any successful entrepreneur they're actually focused on squeezing all the risk out as well uh but the the entrepreneurial spirit of moving forward and moving faster um with an understanding and perspective of public service and 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 serving the taxpayer i think we have a a pretty solid mix of uh of the industry. And, uh, I think both sides can learn something from each other. So. Yeah. And, uh, going back to what we're doing, even just preparing for the show, putting a spotlight on these public servants that are out there getting the projects done in the midst of all the chaos and the uncertainty and what 
you know, they're dealing with mentally, physically, spiritually as a way to create a platform to share this knowledge and insight to support and cultivate the industry, the entrepreneurial public servant industry that we're on this podcast to build out. So I'm excited. I'm happy to be a part of this project. So I think we'll be good for, for us, BJ, is we should probably start by telling the greatest story never told, which is actually your story. So how about you take us back and let us know how you got from the battlefield to the boardroom of MCFA? All right. Where do we start? Let's <clears throat> can, can we start back uh, just describing the, the methodology we're looking to go through, discover, navigate, accelerate? We can. I think, I think that's important. So our, 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 our goal here is to, so the MCFA DNA, we call it, is to discover, navigate, and accelerate. So we discover clients' needs, clients' problems, uh, client organizational structure, client organizational dynamics, budgets, et cetera. So understanding the client, navigate, we help them navigate their problem, their project, their program, uh, and we really accelerate. We want to focus on how do we do it better, faster, smarter. So we figured what better way to uh, to kind of lay out the podcast than to do the same thing. So discover, we really want to be discovering our guests' stories. Navigate, um, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody has a, a leadership experience or a project experience. And I think it's important to highlight uh, not the easy successes, but the hard fought, maybe failures um, that that we've had to navigate because it's it's in that failure that we learn. And I think taking risks and falling forward and learning is what this is all about. And then accelerate um, rapid fire session. Uh, where's the industry going? What are trends we're seeing? What's innovation that's out there? Because I do want, I do want to highlight that from all of our guests. So, uh, I don't know about the greatest story never told, uh, but um, we we'll give it a shot. So, I, battlefield to the boardroom. I think it's important before we get to the battlefield. Uh, I, I won't spend too much time on it, but I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, huge Eagles fan, huge, huge uh, football family. My dad was a, uh, a college football player and, uh, and a high school football coach. Still looks like a linebacker and leads like a football coach uh, to this day. My mom was a Catholic school teacher from a big Irish Catholic family. She was one of eight. Uh, I am the second of four. Uh, so I have an older sister, younger sister, and youngest brother. Um, and we, we moved to New Jersey when we were, um, I guess I was in third grade. My dad deployed to operation, uh, desert storm. He was an air force. Um, he flew C one thirties in the air force as a navigator. Uh, he was also, so he, he was a public servant. He was an accountant for the state of Pennsylvania and an army reserve or an air force reservist, uh, flying C one thirties. When he came back from Iraq, he ended up uh, becoming a full-time air reserve technician, which which is he's basically dual-hatted public servant, right? He was a lieutenant, or he, he ended up retiring as a as a colonel in the Air Force, uh, Fulbright Colonel, and he was also a GS uh, fourteen or fifteen. My mom, Catholic school teacher, Catholic gym teacher, actually, uh, so fitness was always a big part of our house. She eventually became a Catholic um, school teacher or CCD um, manager. 
So I think that's important to hear a little bit of my background, not to, like we talked about in the in the beginning of the show, start putting uh, titles or biases. But I, I do think that all of that leads to who and what I am today. Um, so grew up as an athlete, uh, multi-sport athlete, but ended up swimming through high school and college. Um, and I think, you know, I was raised by the swim club. Uh, I had very involved parents, but, uh, summers at the swim club, um, morning, noon, night, uh, practice to just hanging out with friends, uh, always swam year round while playing other sports. Wasn't until my junior year that I focused specifically, junior year of high school that I focused specifically on uh, on swimming, and w- I'm sure we'll get into that throughout the show at some point in time. Uh, but I do I credit swimming with uh, getting me over the hump to get into West Point. So let's go. You know, there's plenty of stories to be told from West Point, but uh, we'll jump into. I graduated in 2004. We were a nation at war. I had the opportunity to actually go back to school after the officer basic course to, uh, to coach and be a grad assistant for the swim team. Uh, that, that story, you know, has plenty of stories with it because I, I ended up meeting or reconnecting with my now wife on a recruiting trip. So we'll save that for another time. Uh, but I think it's, uh, you know, talking titles, I'm a family man. Um, so let's go battlefield. I deployed December of 2005, which was two weeks, um, to the day almost of our first classmate and my best friend, Dennis Zelinsky, the second being killed in action. He was, uh, he was working in Beji, Iraq as an infantry officer in, so yeah, he was with 101st. Um, the Rakasans. I'm trying to remember if that's third brigade. Uh, somebody will give me heat for that. So he was with third, third brigade, uh, 101st airborne. And, uh, two weeks before we deployed right before Thanksgiving, he was killed in Iraq. So I think this, this part of the story is important because it, it kind of set my mindset. Um, I, I was lucky enough to only deploy once and we'll get to my deployment, but um, losing a friend and losing classmates, which we ended up, uh, losing too many, um, really makes you want to live your, you know, the saying is live your best life. But, uh, the saying I use is live a life worthy of their sacrifice. Um, so I think that really created a fire in me to make sure that I was being purposeful and intentional and, um, with whatever I was doing. And in the army, it was easy. You know, they give you a mission and you do it. They give you a job. You don't have a say in it. Um, you do it. So I showed up, uh, Baghdad, Iraq. We deployed early December, landed in Kuwait. Um, I guess December 10th ish, two weeks, uh, adjusting, climatizing, whatever. Uh, we rolled into, uh, downtown Baghdad, we, we flew into downtown Baghdad, December 24th, 2005. So Christmas Eve, I remember it well. Um, our mission was, I was an engineer officer in a combined arms battalion, uh, E Company, 112 Infantry Warriors. 
it was a brand new stood up battalion in the fourth brigade combat team of fourth infantry division out of Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, and our, our battalion had the mission of green zone security. So all of the, all the gates in and out of the green zone were secured by alpha Bravo, Charlie and Delta company. They were the two infantry and two, two mechanized infantry and two armor, uh, companies. And then E company had the mission of route clearance. So our job was to drive all over Baghdad, five miles per hour, um, clearing the roads of IEDs. We had every now and then we'd have infantry attached to us. We had some Navy SEALs attached to us, but I mean, it was the, the route clearance mission was a freedom of maneuver, freedom of movement, uh, mission. So allowing all logistics to happen, um, and all other, um, combat missions to, to occur really in the, in the bag that AO. So I did six months as a platoon leader. <clears throat> I, we could probably go through some statistics that I could dig up, but, uh, I think we, we cleared like the perimeter of the United States three or four times in our, in our, uh, year deployment, six months as a platoon leader. I came back from mid tour leave um, about halfway through. And then I ended up being promoted to executive officer of the company. So second in command of about a hundred man, uh, unit. And it was all men, uh, at that time. Um, came back, went to, we, we redeployed. We went to, uh, back to Fort hood. I went to, uh, the captain's career course, um, at, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I had the opportunity to do a co-op, do co-op master's degree program. Got my master's in engineering management. Was supposed to go back to my unit. Uh, the brigade commander at the time had by name requested me. He was out of command. The command queues were full, which is to basically say Army HR was um, backed up essentially. And I didn't want to I didn't want to go sit on a staff. So I actually tried networking my way and, and successfully networked my way um, by writing a letter to every district commander on the East Coast or every Army Corps of Engineers district commander on the East Coast saying, I was going into grad school. I didn't know if there were any open assignments, but I'd be interested. Uh, so any, uh, any Army officer out there, don't think you can't control your destiny. Um, I met with... I met with the Philadelphia district commander. Her name is Gwen Baker at the time. She's with CDM Smith now. Uh, we still talk every now and then. And Lieutenant Colonel Baker at the time said, I have this massive program down at Aberdeen Proving Ground and we need a green suitor on it. And it just kind of happened uh, out of luck, I guess. Um, so ended up going there. Um, I got to, I mean, this was like a once in a lifetime level project. It's a billion dollars of construction. I have no business getting in this project and to understand like the circumstances here, my girlfriend at the time is in Baltimore. I am, I'm in Fort Leonard with Missouri. We haven't been in the same area code. Um, we haven't been in the same time zone since we had started dating, let alone the same area code. Um, so I'm getting an opportunity to be on a construction project once in a lifetime. 
a 1.5 billion, I think I said a billion, but a $1.5 billion project in the Philly district commander says, I need you down at Aberdeen proving ground, which is 35 miles North of Baltimore. So I'm like, great. I'm moving to Baltimore. I'm going to be in the same town as my, my then girlfriend. She was finishing up grad school at Loyola. So I get there in, let's call it, you know, I'm, I, I get confused with months, but we'll call it May, May or June of 2007. I might get that wrong. Not, not important. 2007 to 2010, we go from a three person trailer uh, with a project manager and a construction inspector, basically to what was built out at the time. And I want to say 50 to 60 people on the Corps of Engineers side and probably an equal number of, of staff on the, on the general contractor side, which was a Tompkins Turner, Grundley Kinsley. It was this big, um, tri venture JV. And that's not including all the, all the field staff. So there was probably a thousand people at, a t- at, at one point. Um, and I'm the area engineer, resident engineer. My, my title changed a hundred times. I was never the number one in charge. I was always like the deputy to somebody, but I ended up being, you know, I was the young captain to all of the generals. It was, it was a project that was close to DC Aberdeen's, you know, an hour and a half from DC. And I, I become the young captain that everybody has these speaking engagements and these, uh, um, taking three-star generals around the, the buildings. And it's a research and development command. These are folks moving from Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. So all of this is part of BRAC. Uh, base realignment and closure back in B- base realignment closure 2005. So the people of Fort Monmouth have an R&D mission, the C4ISR command or C4ISR community. It was the C4ISR, now C5ISR um, center of excellence. CCOM G or CCOM is the, is the end user and they're, they're competing for the top talent coming out of um you know, computer science, STEM programs, whatever. And the general wants his buildings to look like Google offices and there's all kinds of different, you know, it, it was it was a master's degree in stakeholder management and understanding government construction management. Um, and luckily I wasn't number one in charge so I could make mistakes all day long and people were uh, pretty forgiving. But at, at that time, um, so that was 2007 to 2010. I get off active duty. I stay on the project as a, as a consultant uh, to see the project through. And at the same time, I launch a real estate development consulting company with a guy in Baltimore um, because I want to take a shot at, at real estate development. So I, I ended up um, fixing and flipping homes. And I'm talking gut rehabs of, of cool townhouses in waterfront neighborhood of, of Baltimore, Canton. And I, that I call my MBA because, you know, um, it was, I was making decisions on Fridays about whether to pay subcontractors or pay myself. I mean, it was, it got scrappy at the time. I thought the guy that I'd partnered with was well capitalized. And I quickly found out after we had a couple of successful projects, but there was still no money left that, uh, it was more entrepreneurial than I thought 
I hadn't squeezed all the risk out of it apparently. So that led me to MCFA where I'm, I'm now at, uh, that is at, at whatever time I'm saying, I, I know exactly what it was. I came back from, um, uh, a vacation with my then wife. So we got married in 2010. I come back from a vacation. She hears about a job opening at children's hospital, of Philadelphia. We had been back and forth from Philly or from Baltimore to Philly for it felt like every other weekend at the time for family engagements. So Michael Furman, the founder of MCFA and CHOP, uh, CHOP's reaching out to my wife. Michael's reaching out to me saying, hey, why don't you come join us? And and I had pitched him on investing in a real estate deal at the time. Uh, and I said, well, maybe maybe this is God telling us something. We made the move. I came on to MCFA in June of 2012 as director of business development and strategy or director of development and strategy. Um, and I was basically just a hungry sales guy. And there's probably, a, this is probably a podcast in itself, but I will try to just be short here because why, why would a guy that was an engineering degree and just came off of a huge construction project focus in on business development. And I think what I saw was business development was the way problems were solved, right? It's the, it's the very upfront. It's like, I, I hear a problem in that statement. Let's figure that out. And I like our entire business is about solving problems. So, but I like looking out, I, I felt like business development was like my calling. It's like, I loved connecting the dots. I loved connecting people. I loved building teams and I loved solving problems. So the BD guy gets to drive that. And if I'm the young BD guy in a company that had, I think we had six or seven senior people. I mean, MBAs, lawyers with real estate backgrounds and, and senior uh, mechanical engineers. I'm like, my job is to highlight them, like go sell them to the marketplace and get to sit next to them while we solve problems together. So that's where I started at MCFA. That's June of 2012. And I brought, I brought uh, a guy I had worked with throughout the C4ISR government program with me, Chris Schaefer. He's still on our team. One of our, one of our stud senior project leaders. So I joined the company June of 2012. Chris comes with me shortly after October 1st, 2012. It's like the world ended in government contracting. MCFA had grown off of what was called base realignment and closure, BRAC 2005. There was a ton of just low hanging fruit. Like there was so much work going on and we had, we had entrenched ourselves at a, at a number of installations that had this. It was like you, you could be bad and still get work. And I, MCFA was good, um, but that was just like the level of money going on. Brack ends and sequestration happened. So sequestration was across the, across the board cuts in federal budgets. So October, 2012, it's like, uh, like I'm worried the company's going to close its doors. And, um, Overnight, we lost, I would say, $5 million in contracts going into the next year. Uh, Michael, to his credit, 
tried to figure out how does he put all of these different people that no longer have have work um how do we get them jobs how do we help them out keep them there's there's uh, probably a podcast episode on that um and i call michael up and i'm like <laughs> if if i'm you know i'm the last guy in i'm on overhead i'm supposed to be the grow guy and now we're in survive mode and he said don't worry we'll we'll weather this uh we'll figure it out and you're not going anywhere we quickly got to work uh fast forward 2013 we win a great project out in chicago for the gsa uh one of our engineers and i wrote wrote a proposal that was like we had to convince the ownership at the time becky and michael like we knew what we were talking about and we can win this um, so it, it blended my background of construction management with this senior engineer's background in energy savings performance contracts we win the biggest contract in uh MCFA history at the time, it was like $3 million fee. Um, we go, we run that project 2013 to 2016, 2017. Uh, we had started and, and like at, in 2012, Michael was rightfully saying, we're, we've got this great government contracting engine going on. We should diversify, diversify into energy development work. And that energy development work was kind of like, it was what the big firms did. It was what well-capitalized firms did. Um, it's a long BD cycle. It's at-risk engineering. It's expensive, but hey, if you can make it work, let's make it work. And I, I was never good at selling it. I mean, like I barely understood what the deal was, let alone who the target was. So that was in the back of my mind. And I, so we went. I went construction management because I I felt like that was a way to to quickly get get work. So that takes us to 2017. Michael and I are at a conference, and uh, you know, there's probably people out there that that were affected by this listening. But November of 2017, I said to Michael, I was kind of getting an itch and thought maybe I should start my own company. Um. And I, we were at a conference over probably a few too many cocktails. I, I was confident enough to say, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I have a future at MCFA. I don't know if, uh, energy development is the future. And Michael said, well, what, what would you do? And over the back of the napkin, I kind of said what I would do. And he said, all right, let's do it. And in January, January or February, he named me uh, managing principal of MCFA. We shifted out of the energy development business um, and uh, not to be confused with energy consulting because we stayed in the energy consulting business, but it was this high spend at risk development cycle that was, I, it just wasn't getting traction and it was just too, it was too much. Um, that then um, from that day on, we kind of set out a plan for me to acquire the majority ownership of the company. And uh, we can get into the navigate because navigating that one. Okay. So the, the first part is navigating the, the acquisition. That was, that was relatively easy. Michael and I had built a friendship, a relationship, a rapport. When you're getting into business with somebody, you're marrying them and they're marrying you. When you're marrying their family and they're marrying your family, uh, 
Michael and I's values were completely aligned. Um, and this, this is worth another story for, for founders and, and passing on succession plans. Um, because there's, there's many lessons learned in that process. One of which was hiring a facilitator to help us get on the same page, not us facilitate ourselves. Um, so that was, that was all good, but you know, we, I'm the youngest guy in the company or one of the younger guys in the company. I'm taking over majority ownership. I have to, you know, I'm trying to redefine our strategy uh, or, or redefine our, our systems. Uh, and it really just came down to getting this entire team on the same page and, you know, eating the elephant one bite at a time. So I think that takes us to, to today. Mike, what do you think? Did yeah. I miss anything in there? No, I, I applaud you. That's a, that's a lot of history in a short amount of time. Let me ask you this. From the time you left the service till you were made managing principal of uh, MCFA, what was that timeline? How many years? So I got off active duty officially August of 2010, and I was named managing principal January of 18. So call it eight years. Eight years. Okay. Yeah. And then what was the timeline until you obtained majority ownership? Uh, so that was so January of 18. And then I uh, bought the majority ownership of the company in April. Oh, I forget if the documents are April 1st, 2019 or March 30th, but uh, about a year, a year and five quarters later. And so for our listeners out there who are veterans, I want them to understand the time it took, you know, to achieve that. Because I know for a lot of times people, you know, they're always seeking highlights, veterans, civilians, right? It's like, you know, chasing that next, that next highlight in our lives. But I think what you've demonstrated is just kind of the grind and that it was a process. It didn't just happen overnight. Well, I think one of the great things that that I learned uh, because it wasn't <laughs> none of that was easy. Business development in the government space for anybody listening, um, feeling like you're accomplishing anything on any given day is impossible. Like you're, you're looking at proposals, you're writing proposals, you're talking to clients. Uh, it's not a it's not a quick sales process. So you've got so many things going on. And you're rarely successful. I mean, you know, 300 batting average is is great in baseball. It's like, you know, I don't know, a, a 100 batting average would be great in government contracting. From initial, you know, hey, there sounds like there's a possibility here to to closing a deal. So th that's not easy. And people talk about an overnight success, and I'm like. I am 10 years away from being 10 years away from being 10 years away from who it is I want to be. But there's, and, and I, t I steal that from Matthew McConaughey. I don't know what it was that I'm not a great, uh, awards show guy, golden globes or I don't know, uh, Grammy. Um, but he, he talks about always chasing, always chasing your hero and making your hero you 10 years from now. So I'm always chasing that, but I think that that does highlight that like 
in the army, you get this promotion system and you get this new job system and there's constantly a change. And like, it's, it's great because it's a mega organization and you have to like, they're constantly developing talent and just working them through this talent development pipeline. But it's a feedback system and, and whether it's true feedback or, or false feedback or, you know, and, uh, the the army or the DOD HR system, civilian side and DOD side, uh, or or uniform side, is always getting tweaked. And how do you do it better? How do you do it faster? How do you how do you make it more of a meritocracy? Blah 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 blah. It's hard in entrepreneurial America to like. Hey, am I doing all right? Am I like? Are we succeeding here? And at like on the project side. You move from project to project and there's rate structure increase and you go from junior to engineer to senior engineer. But when you're when you're on the business development or or business side of this business, um, it's it's difficult to feel like you're successful ever. And I, I mean, today you can look at MCFA and I have, you know, to to a certain level of um confidence, you know, that anything can change, that we're going to have a good year. But do I know who I'm hiring tomorrow and how they're going to affect my culture or how they're going to impact a client or, you know, are they a good move or not? No. Where am I getting the next five people? Where am I getting the 10 people after that? How do I maintain a culture that, that we've worked very hard to establish? Um, it's... <laughs> It's all hard work. Um, so that's that's um, my story and I'm sticking to it, Mike. So that segues way into our final question before I, we wrap up the episode. What keeps you up at night? Ooh. So that, that question depends on the day, right? Right now I'm in a growth mode and we've got a lot of trends playing our way. I'm up at night with excitement and ideas, but trying to find right talent. I just had a conversation with our boy, Bill Watkins earlier today, that just in time talent is the hardest thing that entrepreneurial organizations have to fight with. Corporate and public organizations, larger organizations just have, um, they have redundancy built into their, their structure. You know, one guy goes down, there's three other people that can kind of take on some of that weight. When you're a small business, we're 25 people. My brother works for us. He's going out on maternity leave tomorrow. And I'm like, shit, we don't have anybody to take on the stuff he's doing. It's only one week, but one week of, you know, that's 40 hours of work. If everybody had any clue what he does on any given day, meaning specifically his roles, his tasks, 40 hours, how do you absorb 40 hours over 25 people? And oh, by the way, none of those 25 people know what he's doing. So I'm trying to figure out how do we split up 40 hours between me, my COO, Michael, uh, my partner, and and uh, you know some back office support. Uh, so I think just-in-time talent is what keeps me up. You don't want to hire two. You don't want to rush into a hire and make a bad hire. You don't want to hire too soon and have that person sitting on overhead. And there was a third thought I had there. Don't hire too soon. Oh, and then once you choose to hire, how do you integrate them into your culture 
while effectively, while making them uh, effective on the project work. Because a project team in and of itself is its own, you know, you've got the client, you've got the client staff, you've got the client's organizational dynamics, you have our projects, sometimes you have our subcontractors. So you have a project team that you have to integrate into while integrating them into our culture. And our culture is very entrepreneurial, very spirited, very fun, but we don't get to, we're not in the office every day. We're on the, we're on a call with the entire team, you know, one, one hour a week and 15 minutes a morning. So I don't get to reach out and touch everybody all the time, but I've worked side by side, most of the people in our company for, you know, going on, going on 10 years. So I think the uh, the talent and the culture war are the thing that keep me up the most right now. But if you if you had asked me a year ago, it probably would have been financial data, uh, and and it's and how to make decisions based on it. Just so. in time, talent sounds like it'd be a good blog post for the industry. Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. So we're wrapping up this episode, BJ. Why don't you go ahead and close us out? Uh, well, first I. I want to give a shout out to uh, my boy, Mike Stedman here. Uh, he's been side by side with me for the last, I don't know, seven weeks since we made the decision. Um, it's, it's his job to put me on the map and it's my job to put him on the map. Uh, but we really, we really appreciate anybody that's going to uh, follow us. Um, if you're into my story, let's connect. If you're not, stay tuned. We're going to have plenty of stories to bring to you. Uh, if you could do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People in Places on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, we'd also greatly appreciate it if you left us a review, shared with us, uh, share with us what your thoughts are, and please share this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Visit our website at www.mcfaglobal.com and sign up for our newsletter uh, if you want to hear more about the MCFA DNA and our core values. Last, we're hiring. If you or anyone you know are looking to work in the planning, project development, project management, or construction management field, contact us through our website. I will promise you that it will be hard to get a job at MCFA. Uh, we just launched this. Uh, we're calling it a player hiring system. We just launched it. It's difficult. Three interviews, one presentation, put together a proposal. We need people who can present, write, work hard, roll up sleeves, solve problems, work with a team, uh, are aligned with our core values. Like I said, this is the hardest thing. This is the thing that keeps me up at night. Uh, but we are growing. There are trends in the marketplace right now that are just playing to our favor. Uh, so if you think you align with us, take a look at our website, apply, and we'll see if we can, uh, we can set up an interview. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Have a great week everyone and see you on the next episode.